Hey, welcome to our Public Church podcast. We hope this message blesses you today. For more information on Public Church, please see us on www.public.church. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. If you're the type that likes following an actual Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start there, and then we're going to go forward. It's so good that this worked out. I got, I got stuck in Queensland. And uh, that's a good thing because uh, stuck seems negative, but actually it was a good thing. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. And um, so it worked out for me to be here for the first time with um, Cameron and Renee. We have lots of mutual friends and they're like, you got you to gotta meet up. You got to connect with these folks. And, um, and so here, here we are. Anytime I speak, I want a few things to happen. I want Jesus to get bigger. I want the cross to work better. I want the resurrection to be central. I want scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. So we're going to talk about Jesus today. I'm on your way out. Um, in the foyer area, uh, we have a small resource table set up. Normally, my resource table takes up half the room, but because of the COVID restrictions, I want to be a good citizen. I want to be easy on churches. So I only have the new stuff that I've brought, uh, that I've done this year. So we have a 12-part series on the book of Revelation. Um, it's 12 parts in audio, 10 parts in video, right? And then we have um, a series on faith um, in uncertainty that Hand on Heart, I wrote it in November last year, um, preparing for this year, but um, it's just turned out to be perfect. And then we have a thing on conversations where pastors all over were interviewing me during the COVID season on any topic you'd like. I frankly got embarrassed by the stuff I was seeing on the book of Revelation on, uh, from Christians on the internet. I was like, oh my goodness. And I had three options. I could judge them, not helpful. Two, I could criticize them, equally not helpful. Or three, I could do something really dumb like argue with people in public on the internet. That doesn't make any sense at all. So what I decided to do was just uh, create a better narrative and take it on. And so you could pick those things up out there. If you're wondering, if you're wondering why I take, carry that around with me, it's because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So 100% of our profit from that for the last decade um, has went to the poor and the afflicted. We have three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats right? So that's where that goes. So on your way out, if you let me put something in your hands, that'll help you see God a little bit different. And, and in so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us feed, close, shelter, educate, mentally handicapped kids. That's, it's a pretty good, pretty good deal. So, <clears throat> which leads me to Jesus. So why choose Jesus as your first topic when you're, well, Jesus is the one thing that no matter where I am, unites us right? No, no matter what your thoughts is on this or that or the other, Jesus is what unites Christ-centered communities. And so I want to talk to you about Jesus. Now, Orthodox Christianity has said that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And we affirm both of those things. Shane Willard affirmed both of those things. Cam Bennett affirms both of those things. Public Church affirms both of those things. That Christ is both fully God and fully man. But in one 35-minute talk, you can't cover everything. So I want to talk to you about Jesus' humanity, not at the expense of his divinity. We fully affirm that. But I want to talk to you about what Jesus was like in the first century as a first century rabbi and what it meant to follow a rabbi. The followers of rabbis were called disciples. And so what do we mean when we say we're disciples of Jesus? And I want to give that some meaning and some framework and some oomph. And you might be thinking, Shane, how do you know he was a rabbi? 
because they called him rabbi, right? Like that was a special title that only is given to three people in the whole Bible, Jesus, Paul, and a guy named Gamaliel in Acts chapter four and five, right? So to be called rabbi was like an amazing, amazing accomplishment. To be trusted with interpreting scripture was an unbelievable privilege and opportunity. And so I want to read this to you and hopefully Jesus will get bigger for us and we'll be challenged to live a Jesus kind of way here now today. So if you could bring that first slide up for me. This is Matthew chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. So if you're a note taker, you want to note the phrase, they were fishermen. That's going to come back in a bit. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. That is an odd invitation. Go fish for people and follow me. This is a weird sort of sentence. At once they left their nets and followed him. An odd response to such a vague sales pitch. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother, John. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. What an odd response from four grown adults to leave everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch is this uncompelling, follow me. And you have four grown people doing this. You would understand if it was just one lonely 40-year-old fisherman who was down on his luck having a midlife crisis going, yeah, I'll give that a go. But he's going four for four here. And then he goes five for five. This is Mark chapter two. This is the calling of the fifth disciple. So the first four disciples were fishermen. The fifth disciple was a guy named Matthew. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphabet, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. That's that weird phrase again. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. What an odd story. It makes absolutely no sense on the surface. Grown people leaving everything they know to follow a guy who said, follow me. That doesn't make any sense. They're leaving their jobs, their boats, their wives, their children, their communities, their land, their houses, their families, for what? A guy saying, follow me? Like if you're here today and you're married, think about that. How does that conversation go, right? So you come home and your wife says, hey, honey, how was your day? Pretty good. I quit my job. You did what? I quit my job. Why would you quit your job? Well, there was this hippie looking guy came by the lake, told me to follow him. I thought that was a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? Didn't say that either. He just said, follow me. So I'm going to follow him. How would that have gone? And this is obviously very serious. You have grown people leaving everything. Grown men leaving a boat in the water, they are serious. Look, it is one thing to leave your wife, right? There are women everywhere and maybe you didn't like her all that much. But to leave your boat in the water, you have taken this incredible incredibly serious. And so the question is, is what's going on here? And what would possess grown people to leave everything they know to follow a guy who just simply said, follow me. And when I saw this, it changed my world and changed my life. And I'd like to share it with you because hopefully it'll change yours. So to understand the passage, you got to understand the stories underneath the stories that make the stories make more sense. And see if I can explain it this way. In ancient Israel, the highest honor for any boy was to be considered a rabbi. Here's the problem. Only the best of 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 the best ever made it. It's sort of like this. How many boys grow up in Queensland wanting to play rugby league? 
All of them. How many of them are ever actually going to play for the Brisbane Broncos? None of them. Why? Because at some point you're told you're not good enough to play at the next level. You're going to have to earn a living somewhere else. This is why every 45-year-old man in Queensland has a back-in-the-day story. This is how it goes. I was really, really good back in the day, but if it wasn't for my knee, I would have made it. And the truth of it is, is that for most people, they just weren't that good. But those back-in-the-day stories make us feel better. It was the same way with being a rabbi. Uh, uh, to be a rabbi, you had to go through all of this stuff and only the best of 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 the best made it. Everybody else was told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best made it all the way to being called a rabbi. So in about four minutes, I want to explain how one would become a rabbi. First, you had to memorize, first qualification, you had to memorize Leviticus by the age of six. So before you were six years old, you had to memorize the entire book of Leviticus. How many of us are disqualified already, right? Right? And, and let me point out, you can't read by the age of six. So you had to memorize Leviticus based on your father's memorization of Leviticus and him quoting it to you. This has a whole nother message for another moment at another time. And if you memorized Leviticus by the age of six, you graduated into the first school. I'm going to show you these schools. If you could bring that next slide up. So the first school was called the Bet Safar, and the second school was called the Bet Talmud. There they are there. So the first school was called the Bet Safar. The Bet Safar literally translates the school of the book. Bet Safar. It lasted from 6 to 12. And your job in the Bet Safar was to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To qualify to the next school, you had to take an exam. And that makes sense, that there would be an exam between the Bet Safar and the Bet Talmud. To qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize the entire book and then take the exam. The exam, just to take the exam, you had to memorize the entire book, which leads to this question. What could they possibly be testing you on if to qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize all five books? Your Torah exam between the Bet Safar and the Bet Talmud was based on your ability to ask questions about the scripture to keep a conversation about God going. The greatness of rabbis was not known for their ability to answer questions. Rather, it was known for their ability to ask questions to keep a conversation about God going. Think about your scripture. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you graduated to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud, literally disciple school. That is the school, uh, the, word in, the word in Hebrew for disciple is Talmud. Disciples is Talmudim. So it's, it's the school of disciples. Now, the school of disciples lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long, and it was five stages. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call those stages stage one, two, three, four, five. And if you graduated from stage one, you get to go to stage two. Right. This is amazing. Then two to three, three to four, four to five. If you've ever wondered, I wonder why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30. And then at 30 years old, he shows back up and people are like, rabbi, rabbi, rabbi. This is where he would have been. And you go from stage one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five. By stage five, everybody is now a rabbi. Everybody's 30 years old and everybody is now a rabbi. There is only one question left to decide. And that is, what sort of rabbi will you be? There were two types 
of rabbis. Let me show you the next word, most important word I'm going to show you today. Next slide. There were two types of rabbis. There were rabbis with authority and rabbis without authority. So a rabbi with authority, next slide. Yep, there we go. A rabbi with authority is called a rabbi with samika. And a rabbi without authority is called a rabbi without samika. Now, because this is such an important word, I want you to repeat this word with me with some go public church gusto, okay? And don't, don't do it in a wild way, but just some good energy, right? The word sounds like this, samika. Ready? Go. Samika. Let's try that again. A little bit more gusto. Ready? Go. Samika. Now, we all want to sound Jewish because this is, you know, Jesus was a Jew. We want, we want to sound Jewish. I want to teach you one more move here. It's a very simple move. It sounds like this. All right? So I want everybody to try that move. Ready? Go. Very good. Right? Let's try that again. Ready? Go. All right? So there were rabbis without Samika, and there were rabbis with Samika. Right now, a rabbi without Samika was somebody that was considered a rabbi without authority. Right now, that didn't mean anything degrading, it was just you're a rabbi just the same. But a rabbi without authority had to teach the scripture the way his rabbi taught him. So, his rabbi taught him for 18 years, and then he would pass on that rabbi's way of teaching scripture to the next generation. Right? A rabbi's way of teaching scripture was called his yoke. It was his way of living. It was a summary statement of what he allowed and forbidden. That was called binding and loosing, by the way, right? And so he would then bind certain things and loose certain things. And that was a rabbi's yoke. But about once every two or three generations, a rabbi would come along so special that they would give him a title, a rabbi with Samika. Now, a rabbi with authority, Samika is authority. A rabbi with authority is the rabbi just the same, but he can make up his own yoke. In other words, he could start his own movement. He could, he could make up his own way of teaching scripture. He could be creative in his yoke. Now, here's how they determined who had authority and who didn't. When you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. So your graduation was a baptism, all right? Think, why? Because they baptized you anytime you change social status, right? Think, think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. So Jesus is 30. He's graduated from the Bethel Mid, and he is going out to be baptized by John. Now, at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be considered a rabbi with authority. Think about your scripture. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of just Christians. No, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus and Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. In other words, if no one else is going to speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but as a rabbi with Samika. <laughs> Which means what? He can make up his own yoke. <laughs> and Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your scriptures. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my yoke is easy and my burden. The key to that sentence is my, my yoke. But think about your scriptures. You do not teach 
as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with Samika, as authority. You, you teach as one. In other words, it wasn't that he was yelling. It was he was saying something new. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority. Now, the first thing a rabbi would do when he graduated is he would go find disciples. Why? Because a rabbi who's not passing his way along is just like a monk or something. You, you want to be passing your way of life along. And think about the scriptures, right? Where would you go find your disciples? You'd go find them at the Bet Talmud. And what would you find there? You'd find pre-vetted 12-year-olds. 12-year-olds that have memorized the whole Bible, that had asked questions about it. They'd proved their intelligence, their diligence, their passion, their discipline. You didn't have to ask, were they capable so the new 30-year-old rabbis would go back to these pre-vetted 12-year-olds and he'd ask one question, do I believe they can do greater things than me? And as the rabbi walked around the Bet Talmud and he would ask, do I believe they could do greater things than me? If the rabbi thought they could do greater things than him, he would ordain them into his rabbi school with two words, follow me, follow me, follow me follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy longed to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But all of them were told you're disqualified for ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But this rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud to find his disciples. Where does he go? He goes to a lake. And who does he find? He finds some fishermen. Hang on a second. If they're fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And the new rabbi with Samika says, Simon, Andrew, follow me. That's the Brisbane equivalent of being drafted by the Broncos when you thought your career was done. Listen, Simon, Andrew, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? Because it was the highest honor to be considered worthy to follow a rabbi. Think about your scripture. First four disciples were fishermen. Fifth disciple was a tax collector. Where did he find him? at the lake. Hang on a second. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fishermen. In other words, we're going to find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Now, once a rabbi had his disciples, the first thing they would do is they would do walking training. You wanted to walk exactly like your rabbi. And think about your scriptures. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciple when you're walking like I walk. Jewish historians say you could always tell which disciples belong to which rabbi by how they walk, which makes me wonder if there wasn't a first century rabbi with like a limp, right? But they wanted to walk exactly like their rabbi. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day got to be the line leader, just like today. And you could tell who that was because the rabbis wore these shoes that would throw up dust. And you could always tell who the one following the closest behind the rabbi was because it was the one covered in the dust of their rabbi from the waist down, right? So when they went back to synagogue or they went back to temple, they didn't want to wash it off. They wanted to show it off. It was, a, it was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi because it told the world, I'm the one following the closest behind my rabbi. And here's the thing, right? We will either be covered in the dust of our rabbi or we'll be covered in the dust of our own issues, the dust of our mom, the dust of our dad, the dust of our denomination, or my personal favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. We don't want to be covered in that dust because whatever dust we're covered in, that's who we cover other people in. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. And here's the thing about us today. 
unless we've been given special samika, and we haven't, we are obligated as followers of Jesus to teach and live the yoke of our rabbi. We can't change his yoke, which leads me to this question. Is there any place the church of Jesus Christ has changed the yoke of Jesus, called it Jesus, and then wondered why people rejected it? People say, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they did not. They rejected the image of Jesus you presented, which was flawed. As disciples of Christ, we have no right to change the yoke of our rabbi. We don't have that option, which leads me to this question. What does Jesus' yoke teach us about how to live in our world? There was this one time, there was this lady, and um, the scripture says she was caught in the act of adultery. Like in the act. Like in the act. Like, look, that's not a great spectator sport, even when it's appropriate. But to get caught in the act of adultery, that's pretty serious. Now, you know your scriptures, right? What does the scripture clearly say to do to someone caught in the act of adultery? You have to stone her. So they bring her to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the Torah is clear. The Bible is very clear about this. The Torah says stone her. What does your yoke say? Now, Jesus is in a conundrum, isn't he? Does Jesus want to stone the lady? No, but is Jesus obligated to fulfill scripture? Yes, he is. So Jesus is like, okay, you're right. The Torah says stoner. You're correct. The Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. There, I've kept the Torah, but wait a minute. I have samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. The Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. Right? Genius stuff from a rabbi, right? So everybody gets tired of holding their stones. Jesus writes something in the dirt. I don't know. Na, 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 na. It says everybody walks away. Everybody leaves. And Jesus waits for everybody to leave. And then he asks the lady. This is a masterful question. Lady, just tell me. Don't tell me what you did. Don't explain it. Just tell me where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? She looks around and she says, they've all left. He says, that's right, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah says you have to stone someone caught in the act of adultery, but the Torah also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made all the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi, which is why there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's not that you don't sin. It's just there'll never be enough witnesses to condemn you by the law of God. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't repenting. They caught her in the act, in the act of adultery. And he was still able to say, I don't condemn you. Could our yoke say that? Or have we changed his yoke? My yoke couldn't. The church I grew up in, if you committed adultery, this is hand on heart the truth, they would announce it from the stage. And the logic was, if we announce it from the stage, people will be afraid of public shaming and it'll, it'll curtail adultery. It didn't work. People just left, right? That is not the yoke of our rabbi. That is the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues. That is not the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi looked at someone caught in the act of adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What we do is we reverse it and we say, go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. That is not the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi is because I'm not condemning you. Let the grace and kindness of God lead you to changing your world. Also, this shows us that Jesus is not interested in being right about the Bible. Followers of Christ are not obsessed with being right about the Bible. The Bible was very clear. You should stone someone 
caught in the act of adultery. Jesus was not interested in being right about the Bible. Jesus was interested in something more profound. He was interested in fulfilling scripture. To fulfill scripture is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you've done something more profound than be right about one verse. You have fulfilled the whole lot. As followers of Jesus, we are not called to be right about singular verses. We are called to fulfill the whole lot by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if you were caught in the act of adultery, how would you want to be treated? You'd want to be let off the hook and you'd want to be challenged to change your life. That's exactly how Jesus handled it. And that is the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> there was this one time Jesus ran into a tax collector. Evidently he was short. The flannel graphs say he was pretty short, you know. He was caught up a tree to see what he could see. And Jesus says, you know what? I've got thousands of people wanting to hang out with me, Zacchaeus, but I'm going to eat with you. And Zacchaeus was so moved with the compassion of Jesus. He said, hey, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, that's it. Salvation has come to this house. <laughs> that is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi seems to be always, dis always qualifying disqualified people. It, you know, it seems to be like it was always that way. Like there's this great passage in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about the heroes of the faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Jephthah. By faith, Samson. If you go back and look at their stories, they were all jacked up beyond all recognition. By faith, Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem. And the scripture says he greatly profited from Egyptian affluence while his wife was suffering in Pharaoh's harem. Let me ask you a question. If CNN and the internet would have been around back then, what would the world, what would Christians be saying about Abraham? If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would we embrace that or would we bring up his mistake? By faith, Isaac did something. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking up out of the sand. God said, you'll do. I'll have you write the foundational scriptures for the whole thing. Jephthah killed his daughter over a rash vow. Samson was sleeping with prostitutes on his wedding night because he got depressed because his best man stole his wife. <laughs> By faith. D David had 700 women. 700. 700 women. 700. And he still went and got the one he wasn't supposed to have. You know, there are Christian denominations in the world today that are in their written bylaws would never let David preach from their pulpit because of the mistake he made. But they'll open a book David wrote, call it the word of God, and fail to see the hypocrisy in that? Come on. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women, my God. A thousand women. What was God's response to Solomon? You want to write a book on wisdom? <laughs> you imagine that conversation? Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. God, you got to be the smartest person on earth. We should write a book together. <laughs> right? It seems like the yoke of our rabbi was always more interested less in who is worthy and much more in who is thirsty. You want it? Let's go. Let's go. You want it? You still want it? Let's go. Let's go. There's this one time Jesus went to a prostitute's house. Could you imagine? Is there a worse place ever to run into Jesus? Right? Like a prostitute's house in the first century was where business was, right? Like you imagine coming out of the back room and running into Jesus in the foyer, you know? Yeah. Go, Jesus! Hey, man. I was just here to use the toilet. And it says the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. 
And Jesus said, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. No temple visit, no sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10. Just, you see that? That's a heart change right there. You move one millimeter, I'm moving the rest. Come on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Never asking, are you worthy, but always asking, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want it? I love the yoke of Jesus. I could talk about it till lunch, but you'll get hungry and get mad at me and turn on me and it'd be terrible. So, so I'll, I'll end this message with two stories, one from the Bible, one from my personal life. Um, if you could bring up that picture I gave you, um, there's this one line um, in the book of Matthew. It says, and Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's a quick line, easy to read over. Uh, here's, the, here's the problem with that line. Um, from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi today is over an hour and 15 minute drive in a car on a paved road. You didn't just accidentally go by Caesarea Philippi, right? And it was the place that no Christian would go. Caesarea Philippi, this is a, a picture. The reason this picture is of such high quality is because I took it myself. P- people everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms in their photos. I pulled it off. Come get you some of that, right? This is the center of Caesarea Philippi. T- today, Caesarea Philippi is not called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Panaya, the city of Pan. When, when Jesus was walking the earth, uh, Caesarea Philippi was the headquarters of the goat god Pan. Whatever the worst thing going on in Surfer's Paradise uh, this weekend is, it's Nickelodeon compared to what was going on in Caesarea Philippi. I do not want to be gross or perverse in any way, but I do want to be historically accurate. So I'm going to use some veiled language and the adults can read through it. Okay, so this was a cave that they called the entrance and exit to hell. This was the ruins of the goat god Pan temple. And here's what they said. The goat god Pan is a goat who receives worship through intimacy with goats. And so what they did is they had a group of slaves called the nymphs, the nymphos. And their job was to worship Pan in public. And it wasn't because they had an affinity to goats. It's because they were taught if you didn't worship Pan properly here, he would open up the doorway to hell and swallow the whole city into it. So your job is to, is to keep us from being swallowed into hell. Jesus took his youth group there on a missions trip. I'd have been fired for sure. You imagine the chaos and the debauchery? It'd be terrible. Jesus even has to focus his disciples. Remember? He says, Peter, hey, right here, bro. Right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes the whole scene off. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus goes into that scene and he doesn't attack them for what they're doing. He attacks the fear behind it. He says, you're acting like that because you're scared of this. And Jesus stands over the gates of hell and says, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. I used to kickbox. I was really good at it. Um, I won the Southeastern Championships two years in a row, runner-up the third year. That qualified me for something called the U.S. Open. Um, I qualified high enough in the U.S. Open to be qualified for the NASCAR World Championships. Um, I was decent at it. Um, I I wouldn't want to fight today. Fighting's changed, and I'm 44. It hurts too bad to get hit. Um, In in my day, when you fought, you stood up, and if there was a strike, the stop, point, like think Karate Kid, right? Um, Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off, right? It's just different. So 
I used to kickbox. And um, my mom was one of these moms that was quite proud of me, like had a big trophy room and everything. All my friends came over one day after the US Open to watch the, f- the film of the fight and to look at the trophies. And there was a guy in my neighborhood, his name was Kenneth Brown. Kenneth Brown was a freak of nature. Kenneth Brown, I am six foot two, 85 kilos today. Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 95 kilos in the eighth grade. He was one of these guys that was like shaving in the fourth grade. You know what I'm saying? One of those guys, you think they might've failed five grades, but they didn't. They're just like that big that soon. Kenneth Brown, who was honestly about cam size, came over to my house and said, Shane Willard, I think I can whoop you. I look, took one look at him. I'm in eighth grade. I'm like, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious. I want to fight. I said, no, I'm serious. I'm not fighting you. You don't fight people three times your size. He said, he said, well, I bought boxing gloves to prove that I could whoop you. And I went, boxing gloves? You mean your hand is going to be in a mitt that you can't grab me and take me to the ground? Oh, that's boxing. You said fighting. What you meant was boxing. We can do that. That means we got to stay on our feet. Oh, that's no worries. So the friends went outside and made a ring. You could picture this, you know, fight, fight, fight. I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown. I beat him half to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I was just, and I couldn't hurt him. He's twice my size. I was just in and out. Pop, 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 pop. I was irritating him. And he decided, I'm going to end this with one punch. And he threw a right cross. It was unlike any right cross I've ever seen in my life. It was so slow. It was like, I actually had time to think, I'll move, right? When he finished the right cross, he left himself in this position. And I thought, I'll end this now. And never before nor since have I ever hit a human being this hard. Right on the base of his chin, perfect shot. Big muscles leading small muscles. His head snapped back. His knees buckled. I just sort of stood over him like waiting for him to fall. In retrospect, I should have kept hitting him, but I'd, I'd never hit anybody that hard. I was like surprised myself. It was, he caught his balance. He looked up at me and now he was mad. His face turned red and he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. <laughs> Look, when you hit somebody with your best shot and they're still coming at you, you lose. I forfeited right then. I said, he's better than me, and went inside. You know, Paul said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on public display at the cross. Oh, be kind to your enemies. Oh, bless everybody. Oh, forgive everybody before the sun goes down. Oh, blessed are the merciful, they'll obtain mercy. Can you do that with 39 lashes? Can you do that with two nails in your hands? Can you do that with a crown of thorns? Can you do that with some mockings and spitting, some scourging? And here's what happened at the cross. They beat him and 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 he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving all the way to the, you can't do more to a man than kill him. Paul said that it was put on public display. Come on, lose your moral authority. Attack us, take vengeance, escalate the violence. Use your infinite power to overcome and and be over the top of love. And he would not do it. And here's how I pictured in my head. Peter says that when Jesus died, he went to hell and preached. I don't know what that would look like, but in my head, this is what it would look like. That Jesus descended into hell and looked at Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No, no, no. I'll be here for three days. I'll preach the whole time. And you know, the Bible says when Jesus resurrected, tombs everywhere emptied. 
wonder where they came from. Anyway, he said, here's what I'm going to do. When I get out of hell, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cook breakfast on the beach for the very people who betrayed me. And I'm not even going to take, I'm not even going to bring their sin up. I'm just going to ask them if you still love me after all this, if you still want it, if you're still thirsty, let's go change the world. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Which leads me to a couple questions. Great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's ask a few questions. Is there any place that we've changed the yoke of our rabbi? And maybe we need to stop and take a second right now and say, I'm just so sorry. I have no right to change your yoke. Um, Forgive me for where I've presented some sort of different image of God than the God revealed in the risen Christ. Maybe we could ask, is there anybody we need to cook breakfast on the beach for? Is there anybody who used to go to church here who feels uneasy about coming back because of something they did? Maybe we could send them a text or an email or go have a cup of coffee with them and say, look at public church. It's a place of fresh start, second chances, clean slates, mulligans, and the opportunity to write a better story. If you still want it, we're in it with you. See, I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to be people who know that you serve a God who believes in you more than you believe in him. That the yoke of our rabbi is the only hope for Brisbane, Australia, and ultimately the world. He's entrusted it with you. I bless you to be people who live by that yoke who look like that yoke, who walk like that yoke. May we be people who never change the yoke of our rabbi, but but yearn to live by it every day so that the world will know what Jesus looks like. I bless you to be people who live like that. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. Hope you enjoyed today. Hope you laughed a little bit, cried a little bit, and was moved a lot. But more than anything, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Grace and peace, everybody.